Part Two, Chapter Five of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five. Directly on stepping outside Omar's hut, Abdulla caught sight of Willems. He expected, of course, to see a white man, but not that white man whom he knew so well. Everybody who traded in the islands and who had any dealings with Hudik knew Willems. For the last two years of his stay in Makassa the confidential clerk had been managing all the local trade of the house under a very slight supervision only on the part of his master. So everybody knew Willems, Abdullah amongst others, but he was ignorant of Willems' disgrace. As a matter of fact the thing had been kept very quiet so quiet that a good many people in Makassa were expecting Willem's return there, supposing him to be absent on some confidential mission. Abdullah, in his surprise, hesitated on the threshold. He had prepared himself to see some seaman, some old officer of Lingard's, a common man, perhaps difficult to deal with, but still no match for him. Instead he saw himself confronted by an individual whose reputation for sagacity in business was well known to him. How did he get here, and why? Abdullah, recovering from his surprise, advanced in a dignified manner towards the fire, keeping his eyes fixed steadily on Willems. When, within two paces from Willems, he stopped and lifted his right hand in grave salutation. Willems nodded slightly and spoke after a while. We know each other, Tuan Abdullah, he said with an assumption of easy indifference. We have traded together, answered Abdullah solemnly, but it was far from here. And we may trade here also, said Willems. The place does not matter, it is the open mind and the true heart that are required in business. Very true. My heart is as open as my mind. I will tell you why I am here. What need is there? In leaving home one learns life you travel travelling is victory you shall return with much wisdom i shall never return interrupted willems i have done with my people i am a man without brothers injustice destroys fidelity abdullah expressed his surprise by elevating his eyebrows at the same time he made a vague gesture with his arm that could be taken as an equivalent of an approving and conciliating just so Till then the Arab had not taken any notice of Isa, who stood by the fire, but now she spoke in the interval of silence following Willem's declaration. In a voice that was much deadened by her rappings she addressed Abdullah in a few words of greeting, calling him a kinsman. Abdullah glanced at her swiftly for a second, and then, with perfect good breeding, fixed his eyes on the ground. She put out towards him her hand, covered with a corner of her face veil, and he took it pressed twice, and dropping it turned towards Willems. She looked at the two men searchingly, then backed away and seemed to melt suddenly into the night. "'I know what you came for, Tuan Abdullah,' said Willems. "'I have been told by that man there.' He nodded towards Babalachi, then went on slowly. "'It will be a difficult thing.' "'Allah makes everything easy,' interjected Babalachi piously from a distance." The two men turned quickly and stood looking at him thoughtfully, as if in deep consideration of the truth of that proposition. Under their sustained gaze Babalachi experienced an unwanted feeling of shyness, and dared not approach nearer. 
At last Willems moved slightly, Abdulla followed readily, and they both walked down the courtyard, their voices dying away in the darkness. Soon they were heard returning, and the voices grew distinct as their forms came out of the gloom. By the fire they wheeled again, and Babalatchi caught a few words. Willems was saying, I have been at sea with him many years when I was young. I have used my knowledge to observe the way into the river when coming in, this time. Abdullah assented in general terms. In the variety of knowledge there is safety, he said, and then they passed out of earshot. Babalachi ran to the tree and took up his position in the solid blackness under its branches, leaning against the trunk. There he was about midway between the fire and the other limit of the two men's walk. They passed him close. Abdullah slim, very straight, his head high and his hands hanging before him and twisting mechanically the string of beads. Willems, tall, broad, looking bigger and stronger in contrast to the slight white figure by the side of which he strolled carelessly, taking one step to the other's two, his big arms in constant motion as he gesticulated vehemently, bending forward to look Abdullah in the face. They passed and repassed close to Babalachi some half a dozen times, and whenever they were between him and the fire he could see them plain enough. Sometimes they would stop short, Willems speaking emphatically, Abdullah listening with rigid attention, then when the other had ceased, bending his head slightly, as if consenting to some demand or admitting some statement. Now and then Babalachi caught a word here and there, a fragment of a sentence, a loud exclamation. Impelled by curiosity, he crept to the very edge of the black shadow under the tree. They were nearing him, and he heard Willem say, "'You will pay that money as soon as I come on board. That I must have.' He could not catch Abdullah's reply. When they went past again, Willems was saying, "'My life is in your hand anyway. The boat that brings me on board your ship shall take the money to Omar. You must have it ready in a sealed bag.' Again they were out of hearing, but instead of coming back they stopped by the fire facing each other. Willems moved his arm, shook his hand on high, talking all the time, then brought it down jerkily, stamped his foot. A short period of immobility ensued. Babalachi, gazing intently, saw Abdullah's lips move almost imperceptibly. Suddenly Willems seized the arrow's passive hand and shook it. Babalachi drew the long breath of relieved suspense. The conference was over, all well, apparently. He ventured now to approach the two men who saw him and waited in silence. Willems had retired within himself already and wore a look of grim indifference. Abdullah moved away a step or two. Babalachi looked at him inquisitively. "'I go now,' said Abdullah and shall wait for you outside the river, Tuan Willems, till the second sunset. You have only one word, I know. Only one word, repeated Willems. Abdullah and Babalachi walked together down the enclosure, leaving the white man alone by the fire. The two Arabs who had come with Abdullah preceded them, and passed at once through the little gate into the light and the murmur of voices of the principal courtyard. But Babalachi and Abdullah stopped on this side of it, Abdullah said, "'It is well. We have spoken of many things. He consents.' "'When?' asked Babalachi eagerly. "'On the second day from this. I have promised everything. I mean to keep much.' 
your hand is always open o most generous amongst believers you will not forget your servant who called you here have i not spoken the truth she has made roast meat of his heart with a horizontal sweep of his arm abdullah seemed to push away that last statement and said slowly with much meaning he must be perfectly safe do you understand perfectly safe as if he was amongst his own people till-till when whispered babalatchi till i speak said abdulla as to omar he hesitated for a moment then went on very low he is very old haya old and sick murmured babalatchi with sudden melancholy he wanted me to kill that white man he begged me to have him killed at once said abdulla contemptuously moving again towards the gate he is impatient like those who feel death near them exclaimed babalatchi apologetically omar shall dwell with me went on abdulla when but no matter remember the white man must be safe he lives in your shadow answered babalatchi solemnly it is enough he touched his forehead and fell back to let abdulla go first and now they are back in the courtyard where from at their appearance listlessness vanishes and all the faces become alert and interested once more. Lakamba approaches his guest but looks at Babalachi, who reassures him by a confident nod. Lakamba clumsily attempts a smile, and looking with natural and ineradicable sulkiness from under his eyebrows at the man whom he wants to honor, asks whether he would condescend to visit the place of sitting down and take food, or perhaps he would prefer to give himself up to repose the house is his and what is in it and those many men that stand afar watching the interview are his syed abdulla presses his host's hand to his breast and informs him in a confidential matter that his habits are ascetic and his temperament inclines to melancholy no rest no food no use whatever for those many men who are his syed abdulla is impatient to be gone lakamba is sorrowful but polite in his hesitating gloomy way tuan abdulla must have fresh boatmen and many to shorten the dark and fatiguing road Haya, there boats by the riverside indistinct forms leap into a noisy and disorderly activity there are cries orders banter abuse torches blaze sending out much more smoke than light and in their red glare babalatchi comes up to say that the boats are ready through the lurid glare Syed Abdullah, in his long white gown, seems to glide fantastically, like a dignified apparition attended by two inferior shades, and stands for a moment at the landing-place to take leave of his host and ally, whom he loves. Syed Abdullah says so distinctly before embarking, and takes his seat in the middle of the canoe under a small canopy of blue calico stretched on four sticks. Before and behind Syed Abdullah the men squatting by the gunwales hold high the blades of their paddles in readiness for a dip, all together. Ready? Not yet. Hold on all. Syed Abdullah speaks again while Lakamba and Babalachi stand close on the bank to hear his words. His words are encouraging. Before the sun rises for the second time, they shall meet, and Syed Abdullah's ship shall float on the waters of this river at last. Lakamba and Babalachi have no doubt if Allah wills. They are in the hands of the compassionate. No doubt. And so is Syed Abdullah, the great trader who does not know what the word failure means, 
and so is the white man, the smartest businessman in the islands, who is lying now by Omar's fire with his head on Issa's lap, while Syed Abdullah flies down the muddy river with current and paddles between the somber walls of the sleeping forest, on his way to the clear and open sea, where the lord of the isles, formerly of Granach, but condemned, sold, and registered now as of Penang, waits for its owner and swings erratically at anchor in the currents of the capricious tide under the crumbling red cliffs of Tajong Marah. For some time Lakamba, Sahamin, and Bahasan looked silently into the humid darkness which had swallowed the big canoe that carried Abdullah and his unvarying good fortune. Then the two guests broke into a talk expressive of their joyful anticipations. The venerable Sahamin, as became his advanced age, found his delight in speculation as to the activities of a rather remote future. He would buy praus, he would send expeditions up the river, he would enlarge his trade, and, backed by Abdullah's capital, he would grow rich in a very few years. Very few. Meantime it would be a good thing to interview Almayer tomorrow, and, profiting by the last day of the hated man's prosperity, obtain some goods from him on credit. Sahamin thought it could be done by skilful wheedling. After all, that son of Satan was a fool, and the thing was worth doing because the coming revolution would wipe all debts out. Sahamin did not mind imparting that idea to his companions, with much senile chuckling, while they strolled together from the riverside towards the residence. The bull-necked Lakamba, listening with pouted lips without the sign of a smile, without a gleam in his dull, bloodshot eyes, shuffled slowly across the courtyard between his two guests. But suddenly Bahasin broke in upon the old man's prattle with the generous enthusiasm of his youth. Trading was very good. But was the change that would make them happy effected yet? The white man should be despoiled with a strong hand. He grew excited, spoke very loud, and his further discourse, delivered with his hand on the hill of his sword, dealt incoherently with the honorable topics of throat-cutting, fire-raising, and with the far-famed valor of his ancestors. Babalachi remained behind, alone with the greatness of his conceptions. The sagacious statesman of Sambir sent a scornful glance after his noble protector and his noble protector's friends, and then stood meditating about that future which to the others seemed so assured. Not so to Babalachi, who paid the penalty of his wisdom by a vague sense of insecurity that kept sleep at arm's length from his tired body. When he thought at last of leaving the waterside, it was only to strike a path for himself and to creep along the fences, avoiding the middle of the courtyard where small fires glimmered and winked as though the sinister darkness there had reflected the stars of the serene heaven. He swung past the wicket gate of Omar's enclosure and crept on patiently along the light bamboo palisade till he was stopped by the angle where it joined the heavy stockade of Lakamba's private ground. Standing there he could look over the fence and see Omar's hut and the fire before its door. He could also see the shadow of two human beings sitting between him and the red glow, a man and a woman. The sight seemed to inspire the careworn sage with a frivolous desire to sing. It could hardly be called a song. It was more in the nature of a recitative without any rhythm, delivered rapidly but distinctly in a croaking and unsteady voice. And if Babalachi considered it a song, then it was a song with a purpose, and perhaps for that reason artistically defective. 
it had all the imperfections of unskillful improvisation and its subject was gruesome it told the tale of shipwreck and of thirst and of one brother killing another for the sake of a gourd of water a repulsive story which might have had a purpose but possessed no moral whatever yet it must have pleased babalatchi for he repeated it twice the second time even in louder tones than at first causing a disturbance amongst the white rice-birds and the wild fruit-pigeons which roosted on the boughs of the big tree growing in omar's compound there was in the thick foliage above the singer's head a confused beating of wings sleepy remarks in bird language a sharp stir of leaves the forms by the fire moved the shadow of the woman altered its shape and babalatchi's song was cut short abruptly by a fit of soft and persistent coughing he did not try to resume his efforts after that interruption but went away stealthily to seek if not sleep then at least repose End of chapter five recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com